All right, I think we're ready to go. I am so excited about Luke. So first, let's talk about syllabus. So this time of year, so if you've been in Bible study with me the past couple of winter springs, you know the schedule gets a little crazy because of uh, Board of Learning Ministry and and a couple other things. So um, next year, I might even just wait and start in February because the schedule in January gets so crazy. So if you, does everybody have a copy of the syllabus in front of them? There, there are some out there. Yes, sir. Anybody else need one? Okay. So if you take a look at it, uh, the next two weeks, I'm actually, I, I'm in and out of town. I mean, I'm preaching, so I'll be here on Sunday morning, but then Sunday afternoon gets uh, a little dicey. This time of year for me, it's Board of Ordained Ministry, and it's uh, kind of the kickoff year of the year committee meetings at church that, believe it or not, take much of the day on Sunday. So the next two weeks, we're actually not going to meet, <laughs> but I didn't want to, we'd already advertised today, so I didn't want to not meet today. And so I figured we'd go ahead and get the, uh, the schedule in your hand. So if you want to be following along with either a commentary or just reading before uh, we come to class, you can do that. So the next two weeks, we're off. Uh, then we start back up on November or November, January 30th, and we'll talk about, you see the, the chapters we're covering there. And then I've got this weird run where I'm in and out of town. And so, and again, some of that's board of our ministry, uh, some of it's spring break related. So we will still meet and we're just going to have a guest teacher. Reagan, did you walk in? Reagan is going to be doing solos and tap dances for those three. <laughs> now we're we're <laughs> we're still figuring out what who who exactly is going to do what. Whether we're going to do like a three week thing that would have spread out over that time, or we're working through some details. But rather than not meeting and meeting and not meeting and meeting, so everybody forgets you know when we're meeting and when we're not. We the next two we're just going to be off, so we'd have to deal with guest teachers. We'll start back up the 30th, and then we'll meet all the way through uh, the end of April with the only Sunday without a meeting being Easter Sunday, of course. Does that make sense? And that gives, um, there are actually 13 meetings, if you look at that, with the guest teachers, but only 10 of them are going to be doing Luke um, with me. So, Reagan had asked if I wanted somebody uh, to cover other stuff in Luke. I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just do something different entirely. Because they might, I don't know, they might teach it different. I don't want that to happen. <laughs> right, exactly. I got my syllabus now. I got my... So, um, man, a cold front's blowing in again, huh? It's chilly out there. It was 61 degrees when I came to church this morning. It was not that when I left at 1. So, okay. The reason we're doing Luke now instead of doing Matthew, so Matthew is first in canonical order, and that if we were just going to go back, back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament, normally I would do things in canonical order, meaning the order they appear in the Bible. But Luke is the, the gospel lectionary text for this year, and we're going to be in Luke a lot this year uh, in, in sermon series. So we, had, um, we were in Luke for Advent, actually doing uh, what we're going to recap today, the first chapter. I did Luke this morning for baptism of the Lord. Our Lenten sermon series is going to be the life of Christ, uh, taking, taking um, uh, stories from Luke. Easter, of course, is going to be Luke. Um, uh, Good Friday, Palm Passion Sunday, that's going to be Luke. 
Pentecost is Acts, which is also Luke. We'll talk about here. And then in September, we're going to do Luke's greatest hits. So we're going to do the prodigal, um, Zacchaeus, and Good Samaritan in September. So we're, we're going to be spending so much time with Luke, I figured we would just take a deep dive on him all together. Uh, and then looking ahead, in the fall, we're going to do Exodus, because that's the next one in the Old Testament. Um, and then this time next year, the plan is, and we have to work through a couple details on this, to do um, the life of Paul, because we are, uh, I have pencil in my head, um, taking a church trip, footsteps of Paul, for April of 23. So look for details about that. Um, that always ends up being like part cruise, part land. You know, some, I think you go to, I think you might go to Patmos on that, but it's mostly like Turkey, Greece. It's going to be really cool. So um, the New Testament for the next couple of years, we're not going to do like we we're, like we're going to approach the Old Testament. So that's why we're talking about Luke uh, this semester and not Matthew. And Luke, as you probably know, is number two in my gospel power rankings. <laughs> Behind, of course, the gospel of John. But John doesn't really, I mean, John is so different than the synoptics. Um, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'll t- we'll talk about, we're going to talk about why that is tonight. Um, and of those three, oh, Luke is just, I, it's beloved. I love this gospel. Love it. It's challenging in some places. Um, so that's that's good. We'll, we'll cover that together. But it absolutely contains our most beloved stories. Luke is absolutely our best storyteller, whether you're reading him in translation or reading him in the original Greek. Um, and he is just, it's impossible to overstate his importance to Christian theology. So you guys probably know this. Some of it, for some of y'all, it's going to be a recap. So it, the gospel was written somewhere 80 to 90 AD, probably which makes it pretty late. I mean, that's 50 years. That's a half century after the resurrection. So the church has been in existence for a while. And uh, that's evident in some of the things we're going to read. The author of Luke wrote the book of Acts. Same author. Very clear in the, in the prologue to both of these books that we'll touch on a little bit tonight. But that means that he covered 25... The 25% of the New Testament is the result of this one single author. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's a lot. Um, There are themes that come up over and over again, some of which are introduced right in the first chapter, which we're going to cover today. And I'm going to uh, come back to these themes. If you can't read it, don't worry. I'll I'll talk about each of them. So the synoptics. We talked about this a little bit when we did Bible in 50. But there's this thing that scholars call the two-source theory. It's how much I love this gospel, by the way. I'm just getting right into it. I'm just diving right into it. Do you guys have any questions before I dive right into it? <laughs> or anything you wanted to talk about? Okay. So the two-source two theory is um, that, that term comes from the fact that Matthew and Luke, both of which were written about the same time. It's not clear exactly what the date is, but they're about the same time. Those two gospel authors uh, share two sources. Both of them have the gospel of Mark in front of them. And they have, I hate that there's this whole QAnon thing. It's totally different. Q, Q is, uh, I mean, yeah. Q is 
is the abbreviation for quella, which in German means source. So Luke and Matthew share a whole bunch of material that is virtually identical. And so scholars assume that they had this other document in front of them. So the two-source theory means that the two of the three synoptics relied on the third. And again, John is his own thing entirely. So for Luke, about 33% of the material in Luke is right from Mark. The basic structure of the Gospel of Luke follows Mark. He does leave some things out that I'll mention if it's, if it's uh, interesting to you. And then about 25% of Luke is this shared material with Matthew. One of the cool things, if you really, if you really nerd out on Bible study, having a um, uh, gospel, um, like the gospel parallels, I've got this little book that shows the whole canon, uh, the, the gospel canon, side by side by side. So it shows you Matthew 1, where that parallels in Mark and where it parallels in Luke, if it does. The gospel parallels, they call it. And again, John is not in that because John does something else entirely. But 58% roughly of Luke comes from these two sources. And one of the things that scholars do a fair amount uh, or spend a fair amount of time doing is looking at a story in Mark and then identifying, analyzing how Matthew and Luke change the details of that particular story. That happens with stuff like the, um, the passion narratives. Um, the, the baptism narratives are all, they're, they're different in nuanced ways. And the conclusions that scholars draw from that kind of analysis, uh, or they try to infer, is what theological emphases these authors are interested in based on their relationships with one another. So if one gospel author in in the story of the baptism has uh, the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, that's a little different than what Luke does when he says, you are my beloved son. Like it's God talking to Jesus in one one version of the baptism story. It's God talking to the crowd in another version of the baptism story. In Luke's gospel, the spirit descends bodily in the form of a dove and so we, we get all of these. It's actually pretty cool. Um, you never hear about it in a sermon because that's way too much detail for a 15 or 20-minute, uh, you know, not to be like public speaking. But on a, a deep dive on those kind of uh, details is, is pretty cool. Um, Jesus' last words, is, they're different and slightly different in the three synoptics. So uh, that two-source theory has been the predominant theory in, in biblical scholarship for, well, since the 19th century, so 150 years or so. So it's relatively, relatively recent, but it's, um, it's the, it is one of the latest iterations in biblical scholarship. The other, stu- the other uh, major um, piece of Luke is Luke, Luke's own material. So Matthew has some stuff that really is unique to Matthew. Luke has some stuff that's really unique to Luke. And then the other percentages would be like citations of the Old Testament and some basic introductory stuff. So Luke's unique material, it's like, it's like all of our favorite stuff. So the Christmas story, that's only in Luke. 
um, all of chapter 1, which we're going to read here shortly, is only in Luke. How many people know the story of the thief on the cross? Where Jesus forgives the thief on the cross. That's only in Luke. The Good Samaritan, only in Luke. Prodigal son, only in Luke. Zacchaeus, that wee little man. (laughs) Only in Luke. And then there is this overarching and repeated emphasis uh, on concern for the poor and marginalized that is unique to Luke. So the rich man and Lazarus, woofty, when we get to that one, that's a tough that's a tough story. Um, where, whereas Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke in the Sermon on the Plain says, blessed are the poor. <laughs> it's very specific. So the, the Gospel of Matthew has always been called the church's book for a whole long list of reasons. It's got, um, there's a whole lot of instructions basically about how to live life together as the church. Luke has always been interpreted as a document that, um, you know, there's a, a word in Greek that would transliterate as uh, anoem, which means like, think of like the huddled masses, like that from the, from the Statue of Liberty, like the, the poor, the, the collective group who are on the margins, who have less than those with power and influence and wealth. St. Francis of Assisi loved the Gospel of Luke <laughs> and was very influenced in his own spirituality, um, his own vow of poverty, and that whole, like, that whole um, strain of Christian piety, I would say, spirituality, really draws heavily from Luke. And we'll, we'll see it over and over again. It, we won't be able to miss it. So if you think about all the stuff that is only in Luke, I mean, I, I always say that Luke gives us our Sunday school Jesus. He's the Jesus that, you know, put your arm around and it's my buddy. It's my guy. (laughs) Mark, not so much. Mark, he's grumpy and he's in a hurry to get to the cross. Matthew, he's very much about teaching. And that Sermon on the Mount just kicks me in the behind every time I read it. Luke, though, gosh, from the very opening verses, from the story of Zechariah receiving the angel and learning about John the Baptist, from that, I mean, it starts there, and it for uh, 24 chapters of Luke, and I didn't look, 28 chapters of Acts, I think, something like that. Um, it's just, he tells us the stories that are just central to our identity as Christians. And the, yeah, but, but the ironic thing about that is, he's got this, um, this just unmistakable concern for uh, a group that's probably pretty different than the groups that we all belong to, <laughs> present company included. Like I'm, it's you know we we're we're wealthy, we're influential, we're um, kind of pillars of society, right? And um, what what Luke is particularly concerned with is how people like us <laughs> care for people like this. It's really, it's fascinating. We'll, we'll spend a fair, well, we're going to spend 10 weeks talking about that because it comes up right in the beginning of the first chapter.
So there are several themes. The graphic that we came up with for this study was a dove because the work of the Spirit is one of the central themes of this gospel. Um, the Spirit is, you know, I mean, the Spirit is really kind of the central character of the Trinity for us in the life of the church. I know we don't think of it that way. Can I, can I erase this? I want to put some other stuff up. So there are, I'm, I'm coming back to the spirit thing in a minute. For Luke, there are three major epochs in the history of God's relationship with humanity. The first major epoch, of course, is, and I'm saying E-P-O-C-H, epoch, um, is Israel. And that story, of course, is told in the Old Testament. There is a very brief epoch when God became one of us. Uh, in Jesus. And then there's the, um, the third and final stage of God's relationship with creation, and that's the church. For Luke, like this is us. And what's striking is when you read, if you were just to sit down and make the commitment to read over the course of a week or whatever, Luke acts together from the beginning of uh, the story of, of Jesus before his birth all the way through to the end of his synopsis of the church as it, as it was 80 to 90. It ends very abruptly. It ends with Paul in prison. It ends almost with an ellipsis. A dot, dot, dot. And that's because that's where we are whether we're in Plano in 2022 or uh, wherever he was, and we don't really know, maybe Rome, maybe somewhere in southern Greece in the last third of the first century. But we, whatever our social location, whatever, uh, whatever era we're living in, this era of God's salvation history is guided by the Spirit. So in Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the son's incarnated ministry was pretty brief, really. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem and was crucified 33 years later and then ascended to heaven and left it to us. <laughs> it's a good news, bad news situation, <laughs> right? Exactly. That's exactly right. So the, and the story of Pentecost, which begins that second half, begins the sequel of Luke's gospel, you know, that, that's only found in Luke. It's only found in Acts, Luke-Acts. So, um, the, the scope and scale, you know, it, it, on one, in one sense, it makes sense that we would do Genesis and then right afterwards Luke. Because if Genesis is the, the epic story of the beginnings of our salvation history, Luke, in a sense, with the whole work now I'm talking about, is the biblical record of like how it's going to end. <laughs> Not Revelation so much. Revelation's its own thing. But we'll get there. Well, many years from now, by the way, <laughs> on my timeline. So, 
if these are the three epics in the history of God's relationship with humanity, um, then we are very much reliant on the work of the Spirit as the church, which is good news, right? Because this is Jesus' point in John's gospel. It does all come back to John in some way. Uh, But Jesus says, it's better for you if I go away. Why? Because the Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. You're better off, because I can only be with a few of you at a time. But the Spirit's going to be with every one of you by virtue of your baptism. That's why baptism of the Lord is another reason baptism of the Lord is a big deal. And our own baptisms in the church. Okay, um, another thing that... uh, is a consistent theme is the idea of promise and fulfillment. So if you, if we were to, um, we're not, we'll do acts a few years from now, but when you put these two stories side by side, Luke and acts, there's, uh, there are a lot of echoes stories in the early church's history compared to what happened during Jesus ministry. A lot of similarity there. And there's also this promise that God gives that is then fulfilled. Sometimes it's the promise in the old Testament that's fulfilled in person of Jesus. Sometimes it's the promise of Jesus ministry that's fulfilled in the life of the church. Uh, but it's, it, uh, comes up again and again. And there is this, um, phrase that we would translate into English as assurance that uh, comes up also again and again in this portion that's 25% of the new Testament that we can be assured that God's promises will be fulfilled. That sounds like a very close echo of Genesis, right? What we talked about in the fall, same, the same theological idea, just expressed in later terms. And then, as I mentioned this morning, uh, this, this idea of um, a gospel, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I, I go back in the sermon, I think I did this too. There's a distinction between sins and sin, right? So sins are the things we do wrong. Um, and sure, we need forgiveness for that. We have that in Christ. The much bigger problem is the power of sin in our lives that is broken by our faith in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit leads us to what's called sanctification in the Methodist tradition. Well, in the Christian tradition, but Methodists talk a lot about it. And that is the work of the Spirit. Okay, so that's a whole lot to throw at you. Thoughts about that? Boring, interesting, exciting? Good, good. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's dig into chapter one. Man, this book is so good. It's so, so good. So, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account... Of the events that have been fulfilled among us. There it goes right there, right off the bat. Fulfillment. So some things have already been fulfilled. Just as they were handed on to us. That is the verb form of the word tradition. So this author in his first couple of verses there. You know what he's telling us? He's not a disciple. (laughs) Sometimes freaks people out. Um, first of all, the tradition calls him Luke. He never calls himself Luke. That is a great question. Probably both. His question is, 
Um, the orderly account. So many, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account. So many, there are many other versions of this story. That's what he's saying. Ford's question was, is that Mark or is that some rogue gospel that we don't know about or that hasn't been handed on in the Bible? Chances are it's both. He could be talking about an oral tradition, the, the passion stories, the story of Holy Week from Palm Sunday through the uh, crucifixion. Those were all oral, and they were, I mean, just like any story, <laughs> certainly slightly different from city to city. Um, then those were probably written down in some kind of early form before Mark ever collected the whole gospel. Uh, we believe that Mark's gospel was probably written in the late 60s. So, you know, a couple decades before, there was this other gospel in existence, and and. Um, you wouldn't be able to convince me that, Mark, that Luke did not have a copy of it in front of him. And most scholars would say the same thing. So he's at least talking about Mark, and, but who knows? He could be talking about, you know, there's a gospel of Mary Magdalene. There's a gospel of Judas. That one probably is not worth reading. <laughs> there's a gospel of Thomas. There's a gospel of Peter. Um, and some of those were later than we're writing, so he's not referring to the ones that are later, obviously. Uh, but there were there were plenty of writings that were extant in the earliest century and first two centuries of the church's life that that the that we as a collective body, the church, decided were not scripture. But here it is, right here, where he's very clear that other people have <laughs> written some stuff down. And what I'm trying to give you, gentle reader is uh, something that makes sense. So, they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That means Luke was not an eyewitness or servant to the word. But that's fine. It's authoritative. It's in the Bible. I, too, decided, after investigating everything carefully written from the very first, to write an orderly account... For you, most excellent Theophilus, I mean the lover of God, that may be a literary device, it may actually be a person. We don't know. So that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. And truth there is this word that you can also render as assurance. Um, you could also think of it as certainty or security. So what this author is trying to do, and as it turns out, does in a genius way, is to collect the material that was available to him about the story of Jesus and present it in a way that was gospel. Not biography. It's something different. Not a news account. It's not like a Roman historian. There are plenty of those around. This is about faith and about what we as followers of Jesus believe are the most important things to know about his life. The Gospel of John says the same thing. He says, geez, if I've tried to write down everything that this guy did, the whole world wouldn't be able to hold its books. Right? Because all of our lives, ideally, are another chapter in the story of Jesus' work in the world. 
So what I appreciate about this prologue is he's, he's just kind of getting it on the table. Look, I wasn't following him around with a papyrus and a whatever I wrote with that back then. Um, what I'm doing is assembling material and presenting it in a way that can give you assurance in the faith. Now, just to make the point about Acts, let's jump to Acts real quick. Uh, Luke and Acts are separated by John, but that's because John is just its own thing entirely. And if you look at the beginning of Acts, it says, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, etc., etc., etc. So it's very clearly... Luke, the Gospel of Luke is very clearly volume one of this two-volume account. Okay. Now, part of what he's doing in his orderly account is um, is writing this story in a way that makes chronological sense. And I know that seems like it would be an obvious thing that we have won our gospel, our biblical authors to do. But all of you as students of the Bible know there are lots of things in Scripture that don't make a whole lot of sense chronologically, right? I mean, chronicles, sure. <laughs> First and Second Kings, the historical books try to do that. But like when you look, when you read Mark, I mean, Mark's kind of a mess when you just read it. It's that the pacing is weird, and um, it's clearly making a theological point and not like an orderly account of his life. Here, he's going to start after that little prologue. By, um, by giving us historical indications of where we are. And he'll do it famously in the birth narrative, which we're going to get to next time. Um, but it starts off here in the story to, uh, of John the Baptist foretold. So in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. Shepherds are going to react the same way when they see the angel in the field, right? Gosh, this story is so well told. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll name him John. You, uh, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, this, so the Spirit is going to show up in John the Baptist in utero. And he is the precursor to the Messiah. So before the Messiah even shows up, the baby who is going to be his prophet before he's even born 
will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's pretty cool. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Turn, as we talked about this morning. So repentance means to turn, or to repent means to turn. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we talked about this in, uh, during Advent. So in the Messianic expectation, Elijah was expected to return first. And, I mean, still today, if you have Jewish friends at the Seder meal for the Passover, there is a place set for Elijah. He, he will return to usher in the Messianic age. So when this angel, no wings, shows up at the temple and says, hey, well, I got a deal for you. You're finally going to have a kid, and he's going to be like Elijah. Well, then, of course, Zechariah knows exactly what that means. Um, now, he doesn't, he asks a simple question. Zechariah said that this verse 18 said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I'm an old man and my wife's getting on in years. And the angel says, well, have you not read Genesis? Like, this is what God does. <laughs> Surely you know this, Zechariah. And then uh, the angel gets a little sassy. Look, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. So, um, I know I give Mark a hard time, <laughs> but when you read Mark, the, the language is much more primitive. It's like, uh, it's like the author is writing in a language not their own. So, it doesn't sound when you read Mark as though a Koine Greek was something that he was really all that familiar with. And what's clear in this story, even in translation, you can see it's just really well-crafted. And it's well-crafted by a person who scholars aren't sure if this was a Gentile Christian or a uh, Jewish Christian, like a, a, person, a Jew who converted. I mean, he's, he's probably writing to a Gentile Christian audience for reasons that will we'll talk about the farther we get into the story. Um, but he is definitely a, he's definitely writing in a language that he's very familiar with. And he's, whether or not he's a Jew, he knows the story. He knows what Elijah's all about. He knows that Zechariah should know better. Um, and it's just like when you read the opening of Mark compared to the opening of Luke, there's just no comparison. And then when you, when you read John, you don't get this, like this is a short story. <laughs> it's a short story told with the pacing of somebody who knows how to tell a short story. John's something very different. John is uh, this highfalutin theological language. It's philosophical. And then when it gets into like dialogue, oh, it's ponderous. Like Jesus goes on and on and on and on. 
um, makes the same point three and four times. In this, like it's, it's just not told by a storyteller. It's told by a theologian. So it was attributed to Luke in the late second century. So in the late 200s, Luke's name became attached to this document. And it was actually 18th century conjecture about Luke being a physician. So it's pretty late, but not late for us, right? I mean, that's still pretty old for us. Um, but that's pretty late in the, history, in the history of the tradition. And it became kind of uh, fixed in the imagination for many years that he was a physician. But the, the scholarly consensus at this point is that he was not. Thank you for bringing that up. I meant to. Clearly. Clearly. Yes. Yes. Or, you know, the equivalent for the first century. Yeah. Can't like, do you guys like literature? So I, I I make it like a personal discipline. I'm always I always read literature. Like at night I always read fiction. I'm talking about because there's something about a good storyteller. You know, preachers really need to be good storytellers, and when we don't tell good stories, we get really boring <laughs> if we're just teaching all the time. And people who know how to tell good stories, it's just a gift from God, in my opinion. And uh, this guy knows what he's doing. Okay. So, that's Zechariah's piece of the story. So, the next verse, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. A detail that we often miss, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. (laughs) Um, It's got nothing to do with Mary's pregnancy, clearly, as we'll find out. So, uh, let's see, was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, I know we've all heard that a lot in our lives, but uh, that is so majestic. Like that whole, every, every word is put together perfectly in that proclamation. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, I am Gabriel. You're not going to be able to talk to you have this baby. He doesn't. He doesn't because she's not a priest in the temple, right? A priest in the temple should know better. The high priest, no less. Like, this guy's been doing it his whole life. He's old. Who knows how many times he's read the stories. She, on the other hand, is a child, really. By our, by our estimation, she would be a child. And she asked a simple question. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen to that. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Some of the most faithful words ever written, ever spoken. Then the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste 
to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the Spirit all over the place, right? I mean, we're 41 verses in. How many times has the Spirit been mentioned? A lot so far. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that, this, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. The only way, Elizabeth can only know that by the Holy Spirit, right? She can only know that Mary's response was faithful because the Holy Spirit was with her as well. And so um, here in this really seminal chapter of the gospel that sets the stage for everything else that's going to happen, the two women are the heroes here, or the heroines. Right, the two women are the faithful ones. Uh, pregnant pastor back there is giving a <laughs> right. It's really it's a it's just uh, it's so so good. And so then Mary responds with this um, this hymn of praise. It's called the Magnificat. It intentionally echoes um, Hannah's song. Yes. So LXX. That's um, the, the book, so the Septuagint is the name of the book. Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, um, Koine Greek, this used to really confuse me until I went to seminary. Because Jack, my pastor and mentor, would always talk about Greek. And I'm like, didn't everybody speak Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin? Like, what are we talking about? Well, it wasn't classical Greek. But since the time of Alexander the Great, common Greek, koine, is what com- it means common Greek, was the language that was most frequently spoken. Obviously, the Romans spoke Latin. But... Uh, our audiences we're referring to would have read the Old Testament, which is what they called their Bible, um, in the form of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation. And it's translated, L, or abbreviated LXX. So what, what Mary says is a paraphrase and draws on themes found in Hannah's song from for Luke, anyway, who's recording it, would have been from the Septuagint. That's, that's a little bit of inside baseball, but it does matter in a couple of translations. Down the road, when we get to Matthew, there are a couple of words that are interesting that are mistranslated in the Septuagint, but we'll get there. So, uh, echoing Hannah, when she learned, uh, well, when Samuel was born, when her son Samuel was born, Mary says, "'My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior.'" For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. So, lowliness. These themes are going to be, are going to come up again and again and again. So we've talked about the spirit. You guys are going to be on the lookout for that. There is a theme of overturning. There's a theme of the humble being exalted. And the proud being humbled or worse 
And when, when Mary says he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant, she's referring to this theme in Luke's gospel about like the marginalized, those who are not in the seat of power and authority and prestige. And she falls into that category in multiple ways. She's a woman, she's a Jew, she's unmarried, and she's got this surprise pregnancy, which could have gotten her stoned. You guys know that. So my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. That is incredibly faithful. (laughs) Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months. Um, So right about the time John was born, maybe she left after he was born, but that's about that time frame and then returned to her home. So she's saying what God has done in the past God will do again in the future. It's this thing that happens in scripture a lot where past performance actually is an indication of future results in some cases when it comes to God. And so just as God, for instance, delivered Israel from exile, just as God delivered Israel from slavery, so God again will do great things. And yes, it's going to be for Israel But what we'll find out through the story of the gospel is that it's for Israel on an individual scale. (laughs) Like each of us individually will be um, saved. It's not the the national thing because we know that Rome doesn't, Rome stays around for a while. This is the, the soul, the individual soul that will be redeemed. And through that redemption, the world will change. That's so good. So good. Okay, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. And it, the, um, I don't know if this is still the case, but in the first century, there would have been a chair for Elijah at that circumcision. So this, this baby who is the fulfillment of Elijah or is the future Elijah, the new Elijah who will usher in the messianic age um, is uh, kind of the subject, the object of this ritual at which the metaphorical chair is set for him. I mean, that's really cool. We don't get any of that in the text, but that's between the lines. But his mother said, uh, so they're going to name him Zechariah, but his mother said, no, he's to be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives has this name. And then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, listen to his mother. (laughs) (laughs) Wise. He's He's finally got wise. Zechariah did. His name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. Just, 
I mean, y'all probably know this, but fear, don't think of like horror movies. Think of like awe. Like uh, an appropriate level of respect for the divine. That's really what fear means there. Fear came over all the neighbors, and they, they talked about these things uh, throughout the whole entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them. That word has come up again. Mary pondered what the, what the uh, angel had said to her. They're pondering this news about John. Um, she's going to ponder things after the, in the birth story. And said, what, will, what then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. And then Zechariah walked out to the center of the stage and a spotlight came on and said, I know what this child will become. And then he says this, uh, this prayer that's known in the, in the tradition as the Benedictus. I read this differently after I had a child. <laughs> you know, I just, um, I just picture this old man who, uh, who didn't know what to make of the news from the angel, and then the angel made it clear what the angel was saying, what God meant. And then he had nine months to think about it, to let it sink in. And then the baby's born. And if anyone knew the full weight of what this child would be, it was this old priest who'd been studying this his whole life. And God, somehow through him, is going to do this incredible thing, through him in some small way. Right? I mean, that is incredibly powerful. Um, and that's why I'm saying, like, the, the way Luke tells this story is just, gosh, it's just emotionally, uh, at, at times it's a gut punch, and then sometimes it's uh, like your soul just soars when you read how he tells the story. So then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he's following Elizabeth's uh, lead here. And finally getting some of the spirit himself. And he spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the part that always gets me because then he looks at his boy after all those years. All you ever wanted back then was a child. I mean, we live in a different era, but that was the, the sign of blessing from God. And so this incredibly devout priest with his incredibly devout wife who put up with that incredibly devout priest all those years <laughs> finally get this blessing from God. And, and he knows the full weight of what it means. And so he looks at him. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I mean, my God, it does not get much more beautiful than that. And that's the, that's the third one of those scenes that's really poignant in one chapter. 
I mean, we already know we're in for good stuff with this author. We get 23 more chapters of this. And the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel, which we read about today, actually. So, thoughts about any of that? That's awesome, right? I mean, that is, that's good stuff right there. So in a couple of weeks, what we're going to do is read um, the early, his early life, uh, probably at least through his baptism, probably get that, I mean, through his uh, baptism and his um, temptation in the wilderness. Um, when we start, pick up in two weeks, or in three weeks, I guess, on the 30th, uh, it'll be with the story of Christmas, which... I mean, why not read this Christmas story once a month if you can, if you can do it? Um, there's no star in his story. There's no magi. There's no flight to Egypt. There's no evil King Herod killing all the babies. All that's in Matthew. He very much focuses on uh, Mary, who is very much in this category of the poor and marginalized. He, he focuses on the shepherds. First ones to get the news are the ex-cons and yahoos who are living in the field because they can't get another job. And uh, from the as we've seen here in the first chapter, it's going to carry through these themes the rest of the way. All right. Well, that pretty much at four thirty. So I appreciate you guys being patient with the schedule. I know the the winter spring is. Uh, it's a pain for me too. So I'll see you in three weeks. Wonderful. Thank you, friends. Go in peace.